The analogy that I've hit on in recent years, I think of it as telling a joke. When you tell a joke, if you don't give the right details, it, no one's going to laugh. That is so perfect. <laughs> but the way my mother tells a joke, there's so many extra details. <laughs> yes. Right? And so there's this kind of like sweet spot. You do the setup, you tell the relevant details, and then you have to deliver the punchline. Yes. You have to build up the tension <laughs> and then give the relief. And so that, I think, is the art of communication broadly. Oh, my dear listener, my guest today is someone I have been wanting to get onto this podcast since the first season. This someone is not only a groundbreaking researcher and scientist, he is my dear friend, Dr. Alexander Marson. Every time I speak to Alex, I think, God, I wish I'd had my recorder turned on. Alex is one of those very rare combinations of kindness brilliance. And when I say brilliance, I really do mean it in that sort of genius sense, who's also killing it in his career, but in the most humble way possible. And my intention for recording this particular conversation with Alex was to get his take on communicating complex messages in a more accessible way. This is something I think the scientific community is really wrestling with right now, right? How do you communicate something complicated and immense in a way that is repeatable and interesting. How do we make lots of people understand something that is currently only understood by the few? And we cover this, but this is a conversation about more than that. This is actually a conversation about the magic of conversation, the magic that happens when the right people make contact at the right moment and something new is born, whether that's a scientific breakthrough or in our case, a 20-year friendship, that experience of kismet and alchemy, that's what this conversation is really about. So pour that beverage, lace up your sneakers and leash that hound, whatever your thing is, but get ready. You're going to love this one. So let me introduce myself, introducing Alex. I'm about to do something I never do, Alex K. I'm going to read you your bio. Oh, no. Usually, <laughs> usually I record that after the interview, but I kind of I want to start with this. Okay, <laughs> here we go. Alexander Marzen, MD, PhD, is the director of Gladstone UCSF Institute of Genomic Immunology, a senior investigator at Gladstone Institutes, and an associate professor in the Departments of Medicine and Microbiology and Immunology at UCSF. Okay, that's the first paragraph, okay? <laughs> that's just the first paragraph. Marson is interested in how DNA controls the behavior of cells in the human immune system, he uses the power of CRISPR technology to genetically engineer cells to fight cancer, autoimmune diseases, and infectious diseases. He completed his undergraduate studies at Harvard and earned an MPhil, don't even know what that is, in biological sciences from Cambridge. He earned his PhD at Whitehead Institute at MIT, you might have heard of that, where he worked with mentors Rick Young and Rudolf Janish. 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 Janish on transcriptional control of regulatory T cells and embryonic stem cells. After completing his MD at Harvard Medical School and internship and residency at Brigham and Women's Hospital, Marson joined UCSF in 2012 to complete clinical work as an infectious disease fellow. He started his lab as a Sandler faculty fellow before joining the faculty at UCSF and becoming scientific director of biomedicine at the Innovative Genomics Institute. He's also a Chan Zuckerberg biohub investigator and member of the Parker Institute for Cancer Immunotherapy. Alex, 
I know you as a friend that I met literally in the Aegean Sea. And I read this bio and I'm like, who are you? Like, what is it like for you to hear this read to you? I think, yeah, what you're, what the audience won't see is me wincing <laughs> <laughs> because I try to keep that bio separate from friendship. I mean, Alex, you know, maybe it would help to start with how I know you. How I know you is in the year of our Lord, 20, 2001, <laughs> I was swimming in the ocean, in the Aegean Sea, waiting for two of my friends to jump off a cliff. You and Jeremiah, right, were in the ocean waiting for your friend to jump off a cliff. That's right. And I swam up to you because I was like, oh, these fine young things, I'm going to see what they're doing. And this massive, like, epic friendship between six people kicked off. Epic friendship, decades of friendship. Decades of friendship. Uh, a marriage, three kids. Yeah, and not <laughs> our marriage, Naomi and Jeremiah's <laughs> marriage, right? It's crazy. It was magic. It was, it, was, it was true magic. It was magic. Why was it so magical? I was thinking about what like characterized that fusing of all of our lives into one braided, you know, we come together, we pull apart. What was it that made that time so magical? Well, I think you caught me and, and us at a moment of just total elation and possibilities. We had just graduated from college. Yeah. And, you were uh, noobs in your Birkenstocks. And everything seemed possible. We had totally over inflated senses of ourselves. And we were just really excited to be out exploring the world. You didn't seem inflated at all. In fact, you seemed like babes in the woods wandering <laughs> in wonder, which is exactly where we were because we were well out of college by then. It was the dot-com mass layoffs and we took our severance packages and we were babes in the woods too. And the quality of those conversations, Alex, I remember that is what I remember. I mean, I think part of it was the environment, part of it was the moment, and then part of it was just like meeting you yes! and just being totally enchanted right? by the way that you see the world and wanting to hear everything. Oh, same, <laughs> same in all directions. And it was like, I remember the last night when we were packing, we weren't even supposed to stay in EF for more than a night. And I said to my friends, I was like, you guys keep going. I'm not leaving. And they were like, yes, we don't want to leave either. <laughs> we had a huge agenda to explore all of Greece and we didn't leave. We just want, I mean, and I'm so glad we didn't. Thank I mean, God. nothing is more important than actually making these connections. Like, I'm sure if we had seen another island, we'd forget it. But, you know, here we are. Yeah. 25 years later. Almost. It's crazy. And like Naomi and Jeremiah have three kids. You're about to get married. I'm with the guy I met, what, three weeks before we met you guys. Who we talked about. I was smitten with him. Yes. And now, and like everybody went off and did cool things. Like, you know, Dan's kind of a big deal in the White House now. And you're doing what I just read. Jeremiah is like boy wonder, actually not boy anymore, man wonder. It is funny how that happens, right? This idea of doing things young, yes. all of a sudden- no, we're not. No, we're, not. we're no. just we're just doing them. No, Jeremiah Lane is just a badass <laughs> in his own right in the world of private equity and money and all the things. And Naomi's amazing. And anyway, the reason I wanted to start this conversation off with your bio is that I've never gotten the chance to actually ask you how you got from, you know, peering off the edge of the caldera, drinking ouzo with me and everybody, to following this path to, you know, you're tackling some of the most difficult problems in medicine and disease. And I just was curious, like, what are the moments that you remember either like ideas coming to you or your worldview shifted and you were like, that's what I'm going to pursue. What are the big turning points that you can think of? Even just one. The first thing that comes to mind that is just 
It's so interesting. You know, I think all of us have this experience where what we do feels totally familiar. Yeah. It's what we do. I, I come every day and think about T-cells and, and genetics, and that's the water I swim in. And so, you know, I guess part of hearing the biography is also realizing just generally how, you know, over decades we've specialized and started thinking about different things. And I think that that's particularly pronounced in science where jargon and some of these words that are hard to pronounce make it sound more esoteric. Like, I mean, look, there's technical expertise that Mm -hmm. comes through time and exposure and apprenticeship, but some of it is just much more tangible and exciting. And and sometimes we struggle for the words and the right way to articulate yeah. how approachable and how there should be broad excitement about these things. Yeah. Sometimes talking to good friends who are brilliant and I fail to get them excited. I start talking about something that is, you know, lighting me up and I can watch them glaze over. And I, <laughs> <laughs> just, so anyway, that all comes up in hearing, you know, and I think sometimes some of the terminology and, and titles or whatever in, in a biography just serve to sort of reinforce these divisions of this is a different world. It makes it seem like magic that we don't get to practice. It's like we're muggles and you're the wizard. But like we were just walking through your lab. There were these crazy looking like what they they look like little plastic boxes with crazy shit going on inside of them. And we finally looked at the CRISPR box. When did CRISPR come into your consciousness? And did you instantly were you like, oh, my God, that's going to be my jam. I'm going to use that technology. Or am I even talking about CRISPR the right way? No, you're, you're totally talking about the right way. And I feel like there's these different ways in which I think about it. Somehow looking back, like, yes, it was so clearly this missing puzzle piece. When I came to San Francisco in 2012, I was starting a lab. I was struggling, trying to figure out exactly what my lab would do. Excited about possibilities, but also just stepping into an empty room that somehow was supposed to be my lab. And you were there What was the brief? What was the mission of that first lab in San Francisco? So I had told UCSF that I was going to be interested in studying how genetics affect our immune system. How do genetics shape our risk of developing autoimmune diseases? How does genetic variability control the cells that protect us from infection, Mm -hmm. but can go out of control and cause autoimmune diseases? And I had some idea what that meant, but I didn't really know exactly what my lab would be doing. And two things happened that year that I came to UCSF and was looking around for a project. One was that the first pediatric patient was treated with genetically modified T cells, which are a type of immune cell. So her cells were actually genetically modified, not with CRISPR, with a much earlier, clunkier technology and transformed outside of her body mm-hmm. into something that could treat her cancer. God, that's amazing. And she's still alive and cancer-free. Wow. She was, she was going to be sent home on hospice in 2012. Oh, my God. And so that woke the world up. And, you know, there was a small group of people who had been saying this for a long time. But now many of us, I was not aware of that power of, of immune cells. So even though I was starting my lab, Talking about the immune system, this was a wake-up call of just how powerful the immune system could be and actually not only thinking about what's causing disease, but how can we treat disease? Wow. And that's a different mode of thinking about treatment, right? Versus like when I think of cancer and I think of disease, I think of medicine and chemotherapy. This is going to the code level. It's totally different, right? You know, I think of these different ways that we can treat disease. You can think about pills, you can think about 
hormones, all of a sudden chemotherapy is, becomes outdated. We hope, right? It's brutal, right? This is really yeah, like is thinking brutal. about like what we subject people to have tried to treat them, but subject them to really intense side effects in many yeah. cases, right? Yeah. But if we could actually take the cells that are, have evolved to circulate around our own body and already have many of the tools of precision, mm. if we could take advantage of those properties and then tune them up, enhance them God. so that they can really be sort of laser targeted genetically to go after the cancer and spare ourselves. That's the hope. That's right? amazing. That, you know, that would really be a new way of thinking about how we treat disease. So that first pediatric patient in 2012 was a sign that this was not a total pipe dream. Right? That wow. This, there was hope in this direction. 2012, same year I was showing up here in, in San Francisco. At the same moment that there was this hope that if we could genetically reprogram cells, we could treat disease. All of a sudden, CRISPR gets published as a DNA editing technology in 2012, the same year. And so you think about these technologies that that's enter magic. exactly at the right moment. Don't you think that's the universe? I mean, I know you don't believe in that shit, <laughs> but like, that's pretty amazing. Welcome, Alex, to your lab. You now have two confluent, perfect things happening in human history. I mean, I, I, <laughs> it's hard for me not to, to feel excitement right. and gratitude. Right. However, that, that unfolded, is. right? Yeah. And not just that. So at the exact moment that I had come to UCSF, telling them that I was interested in how genetics affected cells in the immune system, immune cell, genetically modified immune cells became a way of treating disease. And we had an unprecedented tool to go in and actually do DNA editing. We just had to figure out how to get CRISPR into human immune cells. Wow. And so that became something that I hadn't planned on, became the animating challenge of my lab. And, you know, to really push the nature of serendipity, I wasn't just doing this in a new lab. I was doing it here in the Bay Area. Right. And through happenstance and the, the right conversations, I got introduced to Jennifer Doudna, who was one of the co-inventors of CRISPR technology. Incredible. And had just published this paper and she was catapulted on this trajectory that has now led her to the Nobel Prize. And we met in, I think, 2013 or 2014. And we sat down and had another one of these sort of magical conversations. She seems like a magical human being. She, she really is. <laughs> she kind of does. The thing I remember about that conversation also is I was really scared. I knew that I was going to talk to Jennifer. I had an awe of over her reputation and her accomplishment. And I just thought if I went over and told her my ideas, what was I going to contribute? Why would she need anything from me? Dr. Marson, am I detecting the imposter syndrome? Ladies and gentlemen, even Alex gets the imposter syndrome. I think it's so important to talk about uh, these me things. Too. You know, I think some of us are better at hiding this than others, but they, these are universal things, right? Right. So, it doesn't I, matter where you went to undergrad, you still have imposter syndrome. Of course. And fears of like, what if someone takes ideas or, and don't see the power of collaboration? And, you know, this was one of these magical moments where. All of a sudden, this just broke through. Like Jennifer and I had an instantaneous connection. Wow. We shared ideas. She inspired me. We came up with things that we wouldn't have come up with individually. And within months, we had figured out how to get CRISPR into human immune cells. My God. And that continues to be a meaningful collaboration and a life-changing, you know, for me personally, the trajectory of my research and, you know, and, and I think contribution that many labs are now building on in other ways. That's amazing. When you think of the big turning points in your career, how much of it is that willingness to 
put yourself on the line, share ideas that might or might not get stolen or, or laughed at. How much of your success do you attribute to that willingness to just be like, fuck it, let's just be open with our ideas and ourselves and collaborate? That's my trick. That's my style. There's some people maybe who are so smart and so brilliant that they can do it alone and have some kind of cordoned off sense of science where they're pushing boundaries internally. I don't think I'm smart enough to do that. <laughs> I, I, I don't think I want to do that. doesn't yeah. sound fun. Yeah. And so the trick that I've used again and again in my career is like looking across something that's working in one field and saying, where is there an opportunity to move that across and connect it with the things I'm interested in? I think of it as arbitrage. Like, yeah, oh, totally. Know, it's cheap over there, yeah. but really valuable in this field. Can we just bring it through? And that depends on relationships and trust and giving credit the scientific system has historically not been set up. There's like an authorship system where one person gets credit and yeah. we have prizes get given out. To, and I just don't think that this is occasionally there's isolated geniuses, but fewer than public narratives would think that so much of progress depends on this. Kismet. Yeah. This kind of alchemy that happens when the right people have the right conversation at the right time. God, it's so true. And you're right. The whole system is sort of set up that way. Also, I'm just thinking about how how much of an ego trip that is and how limiting it is. And it, that made me think of, I've spent so many years helping people in academia, in the sciences, specifically give TED Talks and all different kind of things. And one of the common complaints I hear as I'm helping them communicate something complex in a simple way is I can't say that because while the audience may get it, and I'm using air quotes here, my colleagues are going to talk so much shit about me and I'm going to get dragged through the mud because they're going to say I'm oversimplifying it. They're like, you don't understand. Like the scientific community is so hard on each other. Alex, do you see that or are you too far out from the academic universe? I think we owe it to each other as academics to be each other's critics. Mm -hmm. You know, I do think that that's important. Yeah. And like, we shouldn't blow past that. That That is part of how academia works. And it's actually really productive yeah. for us to give each other feedback and be honest. Mm -hmm. And that communal action drives us, I think, through a process so that sometimes meanders closer to closer to truth yeah. and closer and closer to new actionable ways to treat patients and help people. Right. I think we often go off the course in how we do this, right? <laughs> we can give each other honest feedback and tell each other when we're wrong without the ad hominem attacks. Without the ad hominem attacks, exactly. Like, how dare you be a bad person and use that metaphor to describe something. And communication should not, you know, look, I think that there are ways that people overhype and it's a danger. I think we, we should talk about this, right? Yeah. Like, like, I think science sometimes does itself a disservice by promising too much too soon. Right. But I think we also do ourselves a disservice by not adequately communicating the true excitement and possibility. And potential. And it, again, it comes back to this idea of creating this gulf of scientists have this language and these titles. Yeah. And that happens there. And most people don't want to engage with it. And I think that that's a failure. I think historically science was one more curiosity about the world. Yeah. That's what science should be. It should be another branch of philosophy of probing the, how the world works. Yeah. And it should be open broadly. And maybe that's slightly over optimistic as technology gets more and more advanced. Even within science, sometimes we don't even understand what our colleagues are doing because it's so specialized. Yeah. But that's where communication really comes in of saying, okay, look, I'm not going to tell you every technical detail. That will be left for the peer review of the real super aficionados of this detail. But I can tell you 
why I'm excited about this. I should tell you why you should care. And maybe that will create the arbitrage opportunity where you'll see some spark of something that yeah. I'm doing that's yeah. useful for you that you, you know, and I think that if we keep engaged in that way, it's fun. It breeds collaboration. It, it hopefully builds trust over time. So I, I think that that's the real goal is not to sort of dumb things down, but to make things approachable and shareable. It's so hard though. Like I'm just thinking about how the media functions, not that that's the only audience you're dealing with, but for the people that are trying to write to get enough clicks to get their page, you know, it's just, there's such a loop of, they require some level of hysteria and some level of like drama to get people to read the thing, but then it just way over rotates. I've seen you on television before. I've seen you in the hot seat where you're, somebody will ask you a question like, Dr. Marson, should we be worried or what should we think? And you look at her like, look, like, I don't know what you want me to say. Like, this is as far as we can go. And that must be frustrating from your perspective because you can't speak hysteria because that's not where you live. On the other hand, people only click on hysteria. I mean, I think the pandemic was really an interesting moment of seeing nerdy immunologists like myself get thrust (laughs) into the public eye and seeing, you know, how antibody becomes a a kitchen table word. Oh yeah. And people were throwing it out and not knowing what they meant and using it incorrectly. You know, I had brief moment of being on TV as we're involved in some research related to COVID. I've never seen anything like that. I mean, of all the things we've worked on, right? I mean, appropriately people cared more about that and this was affecting everyone's life acutely. Yeah. And I realized that that was the dynamic of going on cable news, that there needed to be a drama and a, and a headline. And Oh, yeah. And I remember actually, it would, Dan actually helped me see this, uh, talking to Dan. Dan said, well, you know, you always have the option of kind of like answering the question by rejecting the narrative. Oh, I love that. That's, I call it questioning the framing. Yeah. That was a bit of a, a wake up call for me that to step back and say, okay, I'm not actually going to tell you it's, it's this or that. It's both or, or mm-hmm. neither. Or the, a better question is yeah, X. Yeah. They'll go for that every time. So then, and just so that my, our listeners know, Dan Benayim is who we're talking about. Dan is in really the person who is the responsible for us meeting. Because Dan was the one at the top of that cliff. Jumping off the Who was a little cliff. bit more cautious than me and Jeremiah. Which, did you already jump off the cliff? I think I swam up when you were just jumping off. Exactly. And you then quickly joined in making fun of Dan for his cautious. I would like to think I didn't, but perhaps I did. You might have. (laughs) (laughs) So wait, so but Dan Benaim is in the Biden administration and his title is very complicated. Do we know his title? I might get it wrong, but Dan is the deputy assistant secretary of state. Yeah. In charge of the Middle Middle East, East. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's intense what he's doing right now. He's a busy man. He's a busy man. (laughs) And that's the same guy I was giving shit for not jumping off the cliff. (laughs) And now it's very good to have a cautious person in charge of the Middle East. Thank God. I mean, I feel like. Cautious and wise. Cautious and wise. And God bless every single person in public service right now because the world is completely bananas. But back to the issue of narrative and questioning the framing and bringing integrity and solidness, but also playing to our human need for simplicity. Alex, what kind of training do you get as a scientist? Let's say in medical school or not even medical school, maybe it's not medical school. What kind of training do you guys get for communicating complicated ideas to broad audiences? Do they ever train you on that? It's interesting. I'm pausing and thinking about how little training I've gotten. I mean, I will say a lot of the training has been through trial and error. Yeah. And I think as doctors, the trial and error can be brutal. It can be excruciating. 
when a patient so badly wants to understand something or misunderstand something and you watch yourself fail to explain something adequately or clearly. And, you know, there's definitely moments where for all sorts of barriers, it was hard to get something across and I wasn't able to do it in the right way. But I think it also highlighted the urgency and the importance of trying to work to get better at that. Yeah. And I think that those, those were key moments of learning, learning for me, often through really painful mistakes. Yeah. And observing probably the people that do it well, not to take us down a COVID rat hole, because I'm so tired of talking about it. I'm sure you're even more tired of talking about it. But uh, we've got this weird thing happening right now where there's different universes. There's the universe that lives in the Fox News narrative, let's say, or whatever that is in your country, wherever you are listening to this, which is a very specific kind of narrative. It's become anti-science in some ways, or let's call it to be more generous, skeptical of scientific narratives and what the reasons and motives are for the scientific community saying what they're saying. And that way of seeing the world sees every new vaccine development as a commercial enterprise only. Let's vaccinate everybody, whether or not it's safe, because we want to make money. And that's one narrative. And 40% of the United States lives in that narrative, apparently. And then there's the other narrative, which is CNN or New York Times, whatever, which is no, I mean, these guys are like sitting there twirling their mustaches trying to make money. There's people actually in labs like the one I just worked through that are spinning things and shooting electricity through cells and trying to figure shit out. From your standpoint, knowing that that's what we're dealing with, where do you go in your mind when you think like, my God, we have such a communication challenge as a group, as a community of scientists and researchers, how are we going to function in that world? Do you ever think about that? My overwhelming feeling is it's of sadness yeah. that we're just talking past each other and missing so many opportunities. I think you're right. Like, you know, living in this world, I see the people who are making sacrifices of time and opportunities probably to make more money yeah. who are just motivated by making new scientific discoveries and applying it to help people. That is the lens I see things through of just seeing being inspired by the possibilities. Yeah. I also talk to people who feel like they've been left behind by medicine of seeing corporate interests mm. and just entering into things with the skepticism about motives. And as a result, we do talk past each other and somehow we're not communicating clearly just how amazing the successes of these vaccines. It seems to me like part of me, you know, when I think of conspiracy theories and I think of all that stuff, there's always some truth that lies underneath all of it. Like I think about the opioid crisis. That turned out to be a massive conspiracy that was true. It was a conspiracy of people abusing the discovery that they had found. And I wonder about how you come back from and separate discipline from something like that. You know, where there's just lawsuit after lawsuit is this colossal wrecking ball through American society that was pharmaceutically based but how do we separate that in the consciousness from the very real, you know, blood, sweat and tears that's going into the genius that we came up with a freaking COVID vaccine as fast as we did? Yeah, I think science is often very honest about the ways in which we get things wrong yeah. and move to correct. And sometimes that can be held against us of like, mm. oh, but you got that wrong. Right. You know, and like, you know, science, it's a process of moving closer and closer to truth and, and figuring things out over time. Mm -hmm. There are so many reasons. It is amazing what happened. Within days, we had the ability to sequence this new pathogen. We had technologies that had been built up over many years. 
to figure out how this could interplay with the understanding of the structure of proteins inside this virus to design a new series of vaccines, not only new sequences for a new pathogen, but a whole new way of delivering this, this the mRNAs and nanoparticles that have been remarkably safe and effective. And the world should be blown away cheering this. Yeah. And yeah. it's just sad that we don't have that moment. There's not like that Jonas Salk polio joy that that vaccine created. I don't understand it. Me neither. I don't understand why they didn't get up and say, we created Operation Warp Speed. It worked. It worked. <laughs> you know, for whatever combination of ways that, that things converged on vaccines. Well, how come there wasn't a victory lap of go get the vaccine? Yeah. We know this has been a major national investment. We should all trust it and, and participate in, in reaping the benefits. I think we're left in a period of a golden era of biology and also a sad moment where people aren't able to fully participate in celebrating that. Oh my God, that makes me sick to my stomach to think about that. How does it feel on the side of the researchers that were a part of that movement to see that? I mean, aside from sadness, do you also feel like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, does that ever cross your mind? Like how it can't just be sadness that you feel. I, you know, <laughs> we're trying to keep it PG here, Bronwyn. I try to focus on, on, what, we, on, on what we can do. You know, like I get inspired all the time walking through the lab and being surprised by what people in my lab are able to do today that they yeah. couldn't dream of a few months ago, you know, and just wow. watching the sort of rate of progress that comes from young people coming in enthusiastic being in a collaborative environment, inspiring each other, and then coming to me surprised about what they can now accomplish. What they've discovered. And so that's like the joy of my job. So, you know, I'm, I continue to just be regularly inspired by the possibilities. And it seems like cancer has not been politicized yet. Some of the, the diseases that you're working on aren't all COVID. It's not all politicized. I just continue to believe that in the long run. Yeah. Even when these things are politicized, yeah. I think we can get past them. Like, I yeah, really, I really so. do. I really believe that this is driven by leaders and media, but yeah. people, when they get in a room and meet each other and talk, yes. can find ways to connect that get beyond this. And I think that science and medicine, I remain hopeful that this is one of the areas that will bring people together because it's tangible. We yeah. believe in it. We can feel optimism together. And, you know, I feel enough hope that we continue to try to communicate this in addition to the practice. I think that makes so much sense. And it's so funny, just for the listeners, I walked through the lab and I saw rows and rows and rows and rows and rows of lab stations, right? And it's got like, there's gadgets and there's things, but there's also like little, what would you call those? The things that go like that, garlands, <laughs> Snoopy garlands and <laughs> pictures of Eric Clapton. And they've named some of the machines and like, it's such a playful space that I think that's also like part of the reshaping the narrative of what medicine and what research is up to is there's so much joy in this lab, Alex. Yeah. Well, thank you. And that's really important to me. And I, that's one of the things that I'm most proud of, of the lab. And I think it's also one of the biggest misapprehensions about scientists. There is such a strong caricature of an antisocial, yes. stern, rule following person who goes you know, like when you think about what the image of and I think it's the opposite. I think of this as an incredibly collaborative endeavor that is driven by people who are often iconoclasts who don't accept in a simple explanation. Yeah. Who want to probe, who want to go beyond and really figure out how things work and what's possible 
that we don't know is possible. And that, I say this to my lab. They have the hardest job in the world, right? I mean, if someone comes into my lab to do a PhD, they take on a project that is currently impossible. If it's possible, they wouldn't, be doing, they wouldn't be doing it. Yeah, right? yeah. And so they are constantly living in this realm just beyond what they know that is actually achievable. And that's the challenge and also the joy where there's this addiction that we feel to finding, being the ones to glimpse for the first time at some piece of knowledge. Wow. And, you know, sometimes you take something out of a DNA sequencing machine and you can just see that you understand something new about how our bodies work, have a new line of sight to potentially treating a disease. And this is what continues to motivate people. And so, That's you know, amazing. we're always living in this realm of the unknown. And I, I think it attracts people who are just curious people. Yeah. And so I see it as the core of my job, trying to create an environment that nurtures that inherent curiosity, makes it easier to collaborate, makes it easier as they take on these enormous challenges. And then I, in return, get to watch the process of discoveries and watching people grow up into amazing scientists. That's amazing. Well, it's like your younger self trotting in and out every day, right? When you think about right now, I want to speak to the people that listen to my show that are in technical roles. I work with a ton of technology companies, mostly tech, and I've been in tech for so many, so many years. And the absolute hardest thing that they face is communicating something super complicated or something that perhaps on the surface doesn't just roll off the tongue and conveying it in a way that's repeatable and easy or in a way that engenders some kind of enthusiasm or emotional reaction. What have you learned about that? Well, I think we have to talk here about what you've taught me. Oh, <laughs> why? Hair flip, hair flip. <laughs> and, and our interact. I mean, I can't answer that question without th- picturing the day that I came to you. <laughs> I had applied for a grant that felt existentially important for the lab to try to get this, our work funded at a moment that we were extremely vulnerable. I had been rejected for this grant twice. Who could reject you? I want to beat them up. I won't give out any names. And, <laughs> and I was about to fly off to this interview that had just destroyed me the year before where yeah. a bunch of people had asked me questions and left me terrified to go back to that format. And I remember sitting and listening to you describe it and I could just see flash dance in the final <laughs> scene where she goes before the board of ballet people. That's who I was thinking in my mind, Alex, just so you know. And I came to you with these like scribbles on a piece of paper. I remember. And you were like, tell me, because I had to give a five minute talk summarizing my Which work. Which is and- the hardest kind of talk to give is a five minute talk. No PowerPoint slides, just me talking God, with the timer going. Oh my God. It's like the Hunger Games. This was, I think, literally the day before, maybe two days before. Yep. We were at the Stanford GSB. I remember. I think we were at the cafe on campus. We were talking and, yeah. you, and you said, so tell me what you've prepared. Yeah. And I just started blathering and I was like, I, I think I might say this. I think and you were like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> but you were so encouraging. I went, you're <laughs> I hope I was encouraged. You were so encouraging. And finally, you just let me talk for a while and I could see that this was a problem. But there was this, this, there was a moment. Do you remember this moment? You were like, ah, I get it. This is the quest. This is the quest story. This is not a problem solution story. This is, you know. That's right. I do remember that. This is a long quest and here's where you are on this. Here's where you've come from. Here's Mm -hmm. why you're the person 
who's dedicated to this, why you've dedicated yourself to it. And here's the vision of where the and Because we wanted those judges in that flash dance panel to be like, I want to be on this quest with him. And all of a sudden I realized, oh, there needs to be a narrative arc. This is not a laundry list. This, That's right. I'm engaging people in a story. You, you talked about empathetic speaking. Yeah. Of like, you know, what's the audience going to get out of this? You know, and I think so often we do this kind of defensive communication yes. of like, I just need to prove to you that I'm doing something. I'm very busy. <laughs> I'm very smart and I'm very busy. Rather than enlist people yeah. and give them something that they can hold on to of, oh, this is what this person really is doing. Yeah. First of all, you didn't only help me craft this talk. You sort of helped me see the narrative. Mm-hmm. Then you gave me amazing psychological feedback you like oh good I'm so glad texting me going into the talk (laughs) I was God I'm so glad (laughs) I got the grant and actually when when the administrator called me she was like congratulations you got it and congratulations on being very persistent after this was the third time you applied for this that's amazing so I think it was also a lesson in in not giving up and yeah and not letting sort of an archetypal moment of terror become the only story that emerges from that experience. Yes. Right. That's right. I think that's right. Mm-hmm. I always try to like, I think like the imposter syndrome, it's really important for people to know how failure and challenges are just part of this process. hundred percent. And sometimes you see that like it looks different from the outside. Yeah. I try to really communicate that I had these moments of total terror and feeling of, of rejection and uncertainty, but I still think about that a lot. Mm-hmm. I think about this in my own talks. I think about this in helping other people craft their talks of how do you get to a core narrative? Mm-hmm. How do we think about science in ways that are bite-sized and approachable without dumbing it down? Yeah. Right. And I think I've failed on both sides over the years. I've sometimes tried to make things too simple and they just, they feel like There's, watery. Yeah. Yeah. Right. 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 So you want the granular details that create the excitement. but Well, there has to be vividness without thoroughness necessarily. The analogy that I've hit on in recent years and trying to work on this with people in the lab, I think of it as telling a joke. When you tell a joke, if you don't give the right details, no one's going to laugh. That is so perfect. (laughs) But the way my mother tells a joke, there's so many extra details. You're like, what's happening? (laughs) I don't think that that's important. You're like, should I have laughed at that? (laughs) Yes. Right. And so I think that there's this kind of like sweet spot of like, like as you're telling the story, you set the whole thing up. Yeah. You do the setup, you tell the relevant details, and then you have to deliver the punchline. Yes. You have to build up the tension (laughs) and then give the relief. And so that I think is the art of communication broadly. Yeah. And I think it's really important for science communication. And you asked, are we trained? Not formally, really. You trained me. I got trained by hard, by the people who were ahead of me who would tell me when I gave a bad presentation. Yeah, yeah. And I'm grateful for that. And again, I sometimes they could have done it more gently. I know, you're like, great, you're giving me PTSD, thanks. So I think that that is the art. And I think we don't often put these things together, right? We think there's technical talks and then there's like yes. interesting personal talks. But every talk is a little bit of both, right? Yeah. Of getting the right details in to engage people in, mm-hmm. in the story mm-hmm. and then teach them what you want them to walk away with. In fact, I even like when I think of different types of talks, quote unquote, I really don't think it's helpful to even use that construct. It's more like there's this group of humans and then there's that group of humans and then there's a new group. Every time we give a talk, it's like a little tribe forms in that moment. And it's figuring out how to get that tribe to be cohesive around an idea or a story or whatever, or ask. 
And I think that's so much more powerful than intellectualizing like, gee, what type of this or what type of that? It's like, what do these people need and how do I make sure they can repeat it when they leave? I mean, that's the gist of it. I love that. And, you know, I guess to bring things full circle yeah. back to our meeting, I see this theme coming through of like this appreciation of these magical moments, right? Yes. Where there's some combination of setting and moment and just the right people in the right place and connection. That's it. I had a similar feeling when I was describing that early meeting with Jennifer, and I still feel that often when I'm collaborating with Jennifer Doudna. Wow. And I think that talks, they don't always go this way. Yeah. Good talks have that potential. I so, agree. Sometimes they're really a shared experience of like, you're meeting people, you're connecting with what they find enthusiastic yes. and sharing something that you're passionate about. That's amazing. And I hope we get to do a lot more of that as the world reopens. Well, that is the perfect place to end because we did come full circle. And I just want you to know, Alex, I'm so proud of you. I'm uh, so proud to know you. Th that is so generous. And every time they like announce an award, like Nobel Prize and things like that, I'm like, someday Alex is going to be on that list. Well, I'm just so grateful for your friendship. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I'm a, I watch your Instagram regularly bless, and, bless. and listen to the podcast. Yeah, you knew and, I got bangs, <laughs> like within 24 hours of me getting bangs because you watch my story. And so just so, so inspired by everything you're doing. Thank you. Well, thank you for doing this, Alex. Thanks, Bronwyn. I mean, how much do we love Alex? I absolutely loved what he had to say about how being vulnerable and willing to share ideas, knowing they might get rejected or even hijacked and stolen. That approach and that openness is one of his secrets to success as a scientist and researcher. It just, I love that, that whole concept, that openness just speaks to my soul and you can't argue with success. There's gotta be something to it. I mean, look at him. But I also loved Alex's faith in the power of a single conversation. And I'd like to dedicate this episode to the young versions of us who are on that island, who are on IA in 2001. I want to dedicate it specifically to Daniel Benaim, Susie Paxton, Alex Marson, of course, Jeremiah Lane, Naomi Myers, ESQ, Bronwyn Warmel, my former self, and we can't forget James Francis John McKee. I thank God every day for the forces that drew us all together. And I invite you this week, my listener, to think back. What are your magic alchemical moments that changed the course of your life? Who was there? What happened? What do you remember? And what meaning have you made of it? Earth school is hard, but man, it is also such a privilege. Shine on, my friend, and I'll see you next time.